Welcome back once again. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and my partner, both in the program and in the practice, uh, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Elizabeth, um, I thought maybe today we would talk about initial interviews with people who are doing particularly estate planning and the mechanics of that, um, particularly who it is we want to talk to when we have first contact with people about their estate plan. Well, Robert, I want to talk to the person who's actually going to be signing the estate plan. And really only that person, right? Or the, or those people, if, if we're talking about a, a married couple. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I really want to bring my mom or my mom and dad in to see you about estate planning, but... But they are not very focused on this. I'm actually managing most of their affairs. I know what they want. I know them better than you ever will. And I'm sure that's really true when clients say that or when their families say that. So why can't I come into the room and explain what it is that they want? Well, I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to learn more about your family, but it's really important that I be able to establish a one-on-one relationship with the people whose documents I'm creating. I need to talk to them first. I want to chat with them about why they're here, what their goals are, how I can help them. And if after talking to them, I'm, I'm not able to assist them, I'm not able to assist them. But it is possible that once I finish speaking with them and, and if they want to have a group conversation, I can talk to them about what that would mean. But I can't promise you right now that we're going to be able to have a group conversation. I need to talk to your parents first. Continuing my role play role, just to be clear. Um, but how about if I then wrote you a letter? You could read the letter before you met with my mom and uh, and and I could lay out what it is I think she needs to do. And you can ignore it if you want to, but let me write you a letter. Well, I appreciate that you want to help give me some background and that you want me to be informed, but it's really important that I be able to make an independent assessment of your mom and know that, that if I'm able to do that and there's ever a concern down the road about my opportunity to meet with her, I'll be able to talk to you and everybody else who has questions about how that assessment worked. Because one of the things I think that is important for you to remember is that if you're there sitting with your mom telling me what she needs and what I should be doing, I'm not able to defend the document that I create for. I really need to meet with her and hear her voice in order to make sure down the road, if anybody was ever concerned about the document, that I have evidence and was really able to meet one-on-one. So if you write me a letter and and want me to review that or, or don't review that or whatever, it, it really colors the opportunity I have to just assess your mom independently. And slipping effortlessly into my role as your partner and a lawyer rather than as your potential client's child. Uh, let me just say that when I get that letter, I will not read it until I've, I've met with mom. And I think you would say the same thing, Elizabeth. Yes, Robert. Usually what I try and do is I try and indulge the child or the person who is really trying to help. And, and they, I, are, they are trying to help. We don't want to antagonize right. them. Right. And, and I try and explain the reason for our protocols and our policies in the office. I try and work through some creative solutions sometimes. What we find is that a child or a spouse or you know a relative or a neighbor wants to set the appointment, bring somebody in because they're really concerned and because somebody's homebound. Well, no problem. You and I and our partner Jackie are, are if 
fellow attorney, Amy, we all make home visits. So one of the things that I immediately try and say is, well, listen, if your mom can tell me that she's okay with me stopping by the house, I'll just pop by the house. She doesn't need to worry about coming into the office. I try and think creatively about some of the stressors that I imagine are going on in the background and address those so that they don't end up being a problem with the representation. I think the other thing, Robert, is is that I I have the common occasion to explain to people what I'm trying to do is for your mom's benefit. And if anybody down the road wants to know about the representation, I don't want there to be any question of how the representation worked. I don't want to look back at my notes and have been receiving emails and letters from you in the mail and calls about the initial appointment. That's not going to be helpful down the road. And and in fact, I know again that you and I share this view because we've had lots of conversations about it, Elizabeth, but but it's important to us that that we be able to say, if we ever have to sit on the stand and testify about the relationship with your mother, that we always do it this way. So the reason we remember that we did it this way in this case is because it's universal. We are always very careful about it. And uh, and so we don't have to have gone to extra steps, taken extra steps, or gone to great lengths to document it because it's just a, it's second nature to us. And I think most often clients and their family members appreciate the recognition that uh, that we're protecting the family member as much as we are the actual client. That's true, Robert, and it is difficult once I have a family member who's already sitting in the conference room to then have that person leave. Um, oftentimes that creates uh, even more of kind of a difficulty just getting a one-on-one conversation going with a person who would be my client. So even on occasion when I have people say, okay, I'm just going to help my mom get settled in the in the conference room, and you know maybe there's two minutes of conversation, it's a lot harder to then proceed with an independent assessment. In fact, I, I often tell the story, and I know I've told it to you, Elizabeth, from 30 plus years ago when I was talking to a, a gentleman, a, a widower and his daughter, one of his four children, in the conference room together, all three of us, and she was explaining what her father wanted and he was agreeing and nodding and, and he was actually contributing, saying, yes, I agree, I, I, that is, she's right. And, uh, and at the end of that, I asked her to please leave so that I could have a separate conversation with him. So when she was gone, I leaned over and said, so you want me to change the will? And he said, no, don't change the will. And I thought, oh my gosh, what have I done now? How am I going to explain to the daughter that after she left, he told me something completely different? Um, I don't remember exactly what I did to get out of that sticky situation, but I remember the discomfort and the desire to never have that happen again. And, uh, and it never has. We talk a lot about protecting the, ca- the, the situation so that when we later testify in court, we can say, we know with certainty we heard your mother's voice or your father's voice or whoever. Um, but in my several decades of doing this, I've never actually had to testify. Have you, Elizabeth? No, I have not. And that's partly because we are so rigorous about our technique that, uh, that if somebody wants to challenge the will that we prepare, they do a little digging, they might call us and ask a couple of questions, and their lawyers pretty quickly come to the conclusion that it's going to be very hard to, to challenge the document we prepared. Hey, but Elizabeth, I tell you, uh, you can't come into the room with your mother, and then I talk to your mother for 10 minutes and figure out she can't sign a will. Um, she's 
she's lost her capacity. Now what? Well, one of the things I try and do in those situations, Robert, is I try and let people down really as easily as possible. It can be incredibly upsetting to somebody. They may or may not have insight into their deficits, but it can be incredibly upsetting when somebody comes in. They're so looking forward to talking to us about all that's on their mind and to leave and and not feel like there's an answer or solution can be very upsetting. So one of the things that I tend to do is I try and focus the conversation on things that are interesting to the person. I might ask about their hobbies. I might ask them about the things that they enjoy. If somebody's not even able to converse about something like that, then I try and keep the meeting as short as possible. But what I have found is is that just having a regular conversation, if at the end of the conversation the assessment is I really can't assist, I still want that to have been a positive experience, somebody being able to get out of their house or leave their assisted living. You know, a lot of times, Robert, people dress up. They get really excited about Mm -hmm. the meeting. I try and make it a good experience. Sometimes I'll bring Duncan or your dog, Rosalind, in and and introduce him to a dog and and try and just make it positive. Usually in in that case, if somebody's then, I'm walking them back into the waiting room and maybe they have a spouse or a child or somebody who brought them to the appointment who's eagerly looking at me, wanting me to nod my head or give a thumbs up or give a thumbs down, I don't really give any indication other than to smile and to say thank you for for bringing whoever it was into the office. After that appointment, I tend to write what I'd like to think is a friendly note that says that I am not going to be representing the person. I don't like to leave things kind of open-ended, so it's important to document that that we are not going to be doing legal work, but I try and make that letter as friendly as possible. It may be that the child or spouse or whoever it is who brought the loved one to the office, that they need legal advice, but now that we have tried to establish a relationship with the person who came in and sat in our office, we probably are not going to be able to help the family members. So that means that letter is probably also going to say, if you want to pursue your legal remedies, here are the names of some lawyers you might talk to, not including us. Right. And and Robert, I don't give any detail in the letter why there will not be representation. This is a, a difficult area. I know it creates a lot of anxiety for people when they they, they feel like we're accusing the children of misbehavior or something, and we're not. We're just trying to protect the record and make sure that we're hearing the voice of our real client. Um, but, uh, but I feel like it's a good thing to talk about so people have some notion of what to expect. And with that, let's wrap it up for today. You've been listening to me, Robert Fleming, and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, As we talk about elder law issues, we are two of the law partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and we love it when you join us for our podcast episodes. We hope you'll do it again. Thanks.